Ukraine, Purim and Putin was like Haman and Zelensky, who was like Mordechai. It is almost magical. Frequently, the events of the Jewish calendar and the readings of the week bear uncanny relevance to current events. That is what we are seeing now. Purim begins this coming Wednesday. It commemorates victory over Haman and his genocidal plot. And our Torah reading reminded us to blot out Amalek, the spirit of terrorism and victimization of the vulnerable. Just as Agag, the king of Amalek, is viewed as the ancestor of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, so the attitudes typified by the Amalekites are the ideological ancestors of today's terrorism and victimization of the defenseless. All of these ideas are coming together right now in our tradition and in our time. Meanwhile, millions of Ukrainians are fighting for their lives against Vladimir Putin and his menacing hordes. Putin reminds us of Haman, the Agagite enemy of the Jews, and Volodymyr Zelensky, the brave Jewish president of Ukraine, reminds us of Esther or of Mordechai, the heroes of the Jews in the time of Haman. With all of this in mind, today, let's look at two questions. First, how should we pray for Ukraine? And secondly, why should we even bother? At the end of this lesson, my goal is for all of us to learn very much about the how and the why of prayer, how to do it and why. As reports of carnage in the Ukraine have been surfacing, my first impulse has been to pray that Vladimir Putin would drop dead. Honestly, that was my reflex. But I hesitate to pray that way because I sense it's not the high road. After all, we serve the God who sent the prophet Jonah to the capital city of the Nazis of his day. Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians, seeking to bring them to repentance in order to avert the judgment of God. We serve a God who prefers mercy to judgment. He wanted these people to come alive to him, not die in judgment, even though sometimes death in judgment is the only measure that works. The Bible understands and uh, accepts our impulse to pray drop dead prayers. There's a whole category of such prayers in the Bible. Most of them found in the book of Psalms. They are called imprecatory prayers. Here are a few examples. 
in Psalm 31, verse 17, the psalmist prays a drop-dead prayer. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to, to Sheol. In other words, let them go to hell. How about that? And in Psalm 35, verse 8, we read, let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. And Psalm 58 gets really graphic. May they vanish like water that drains away. May their arrows be blunted and their, as they aim their bows. May they be like a slug that melts as it moves, like a stillborn baby that never sees the sun. Before your cookpots feel the heat of the burning thorns, may he blow them away, green and blazing alike. The righteous will rejoice to see vengeance done. Watch this. They will wash their feet in the blood of the wicked. And people will say, yes, the righteous are rewarded. There is, after all, a God who judges the earth. Considering imprecatory prayers like these, we must remember that we are calling upon God to execute vengeance and not we ourselves. It is God who judges the earth. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says Hashem. God moves against those who oppose him and who victimize his people. Imprecatory prayers are not about our vengeance, but about God's justice. I found myself praying an imprecatory prayer against Putin the other day, and I dare to believe that I had the help of the Holy Spirit. I prayed that God would bring Putin down, either spiritually, like Saul of Tarsus knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus, or physically, that God would make him sick, or if he wishes, that God would cause him to die. If that's God's wish. When we pray an imprecatory prayer, we ask for God to act in judgment, but we leave it to him as to what he will do. In Luke chapter 9, we read how Yeshua warned the disciples about being hasty in praying imprecatory prayers. Towards the end of chapter 9, we read this, as the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, he made his decision to set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village in Shomron to make preparations for him. However, the people would not let him stay because his destination was Jerusalem. The people of Shomron of Samaria despised Jerusalem. They despised the Jews. Well, when the Talmudim, Yaakov and Yochanan, saw this, they said, Sir, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But he, that is Yeshua, turned and rebuked them. And he said, You don't know what spirit you are of. For the Son of Man 
did not come to destroy people's lives, but to save. And they went on to another village. So we can ask that God will act in that God will act in judgment against those who are showing themselves to be his enemies. But we should be careful to leave the means to him. <clears throat> Let's look at more about the how of prayer as we pray about the Russia-Ukraine situation and beyond that in our own lives. <clears throat> in the Talmud, we read a fascinating discussion that explores other options besides bringing judgment down on people's heads. The story concerns the very famous Rabbi Meir and his equally famous wife, Beruria. Beruria, a very wise woman. In this story, Beruria uh, challenges her husband with other ways to pray about troublemakers besides bringing judgment down on their heads. Let's look at this for a moment. There were these hooligans in Rabbi Meir's neighborhood who caused him a great deal of anguish. Rabbi Meir prayed that they should die in precatory prayer. He is praying a hard line in precatory prayer. Rabbi Meir's wife, Beruria, said to him, what is your thinking? On what basis do you pray for the death of these hooligans? Do you base yourself on the verse as it is written, let sins cease from the land? Psalm 104, verse 35, which you interpret to mean that the world would be better if the wicked were destroyed. But is it written, let sinners cease? No, it is written, let sins cease. One should pray for an end to their transgressions, not for the demise of the transgressors themselves. So if we follow this advice, we would pray that Putin and his troops would stop what they were doing, that they would turn around and go home. That is another way to pray about this situation. But Bororia has more wisdom for us. She says to her husband, moreover, go to the end of the verse in Psalm 104, where it says, and the wicked will be no more. And she understands that to be the wicked will be wicked no more. If, as you suggest, transgression shall cease refers to the death of the evildoers, how is it possible that the wicked will be no more, that they will no more be evil? Here she is taking it to mean that the wicked will no more act wickedly. But if they're dead, then they won't act at all. So she suggests that the meaning must be more than that. She says, rather pray to God, for God to have mercy on them, uh, that they should repent. Uh, as if they, because if they repent, then the wicked will be no more as they will have repented. She's saying that the wicked will no more be no more because they will no more be wicked. So her preferred solution 
is that he pray that these hooligans repent and then indeed the wicked will be no more. So the passage in the Talmud goes on to conclude, Rabbi Meir saw that Beruria was correct and he prayed for God to have mercy on them and they repented. That's from the Babylonian Talmud and Brachot, uh, 10a, verses 2 to 4. I first heard this Talmudic story from my teacher of blessed memory, Rachmiel Friedland, a true Talmud scholar. He put it this way, that the way we get rid of our enemies is by making them our friends. That would be nice but I am not sure that we can make friends with Vladimir Putin. But we can pray that God might turn him and his troops around and send them home, as he did with the Assyrians when they came to attack Jerusalem in ancient times. We read in the Tanakh that God caused certain events to happen and they turned around and went back home. They were about to do Jerusalem in, they didn't finish their job. Or we can pray that God will cause the wicked to repent, as in my prayer, that God would bring Putin down. There are very many ways that we can pray. Just one moment. So I want to look at three reasons why we should pray. First of all, prayer is a force for redemptive change in the world. Paul asks uh, people in some of his congregations, he says, uh, join with me by your prayers that this might happen, that might happen, the other thing might happen. He was not playing games. He believed that prayer could change things. The reason prayer changes things, by the way, is not because of the power of prayer. It's because of the power of God. God has decreed that he would accomplish his will in the world partially in answer to the prayers of his people. He gets more glory when he acts in response to prayer. So by praying, we create a, a, an opportunity for God to glorify himself in our midst by answering prayer. So the first reason we should pray is that prayer is a force for redemptive change in the world. Secondly, <clears throat> prayer changes us. When we pray, we draw near to God. And the great uh, theologian author, Leanne Payne, refers to God's presence as the healing presence. When we draw near to God, he changes our hearts, he changes our minds, he changes our lives. When we pray, we draw near to God, and we draw near to positive change in the way we think, the way we act, the way we hope, the way we dream. So we need to pray not only because of redemptive change in the world, but for because it brings redemptive change in ourselves, just the act of praying. And finally, God commands us to pray, especially in matters of how the world is governed. Now, hold on a moment. There is a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where, where the Apostle Paul says, I pray that uh, I urge you to pray, especially for those in high position, 
that we may be peaceable lives. You know, let me just hold on a minute. I'm going to get this passage. Get this passage for you. Writing to Timothy, Paul says this. First of all, then, I counsel that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all human beings, including kings and all in positions of prominence. So God calls us especially to pray for everyone, yes, but especially to pray for those in governance so that we may lead quiet and peaceful lives, being godly and upright in everything. This is what God, our deliverer, regards as good. This is what meets his approval. So God commands us to pray, especially in matters of how the world is governed. We are commanded to pray for God's will to prevail in Putin, whether that will is repentance or judgment. We are commanded to pray for President Zelensky and the people of Ukraine. We are commanded to pray for our own governments, wherever you might live in this time of crisis, and to pray for the well-being of the people of Russia, Ukraine, of Australia, of Israel, of wherever you are living. We're praying also for the other nations in Europe that are being endangered now. That is the three reasons to pray. Answering to the why. Prayer changes the world. Prayer changes us. And prayer pleases God. We are bearers of Yeshua's Holy Spirit dwelling within us. This is not a time for us to be passive observers. Yeshua taught a parable about how we ought always to pray and not to faint. That is especially true during a time of crisis. During the Purim crisis, Mordechai, Esther, and the Jewish people gave themselves to prayer. As Putin manifests the spirit of Amalek in our day and in our time, shouldn't we be praying too? I hope that what I shared with you will inspire you to pray, to change the world, to change yourself. May God be with us. Shabbat Shalom.